Hi, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. At FX Medicine, we strive to be clinically relevant for you. So please get in touch with us if there's a topic you'd like us to explore or a specific expert you'd like us to interview. You can email info at fxmedicine.com.au or contact us via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today is Elisma Lambert, who graduated in 2002 with a Bachelor of Health Science, Homeopathy, and Advanced Diploma in Naturopathy, which includes nutrition and Western herbal medicine. Elisma is passionate about finding connections between symptoms, biochemistry, environment, diet, and genes. Even as our understanding of chronic disease becomes more complex, the answers remain simple. Disease is not a noun, but a verb. It merely shows that the body and biochemistry has become unbalanced. Elisma divides her time between research, fermenting, making bone broths, keeping active and spending time with her family. She plans to retire when she finds the answer to longevity. You can find out more about Elisma at realisehealth.com.au slash Elisma dash Lambert. Welcome to FX Medicine, Elisma. How are you? Oh, very well. Thank you, Andrew. Now, you've been overseas or are going overseas soon, aren't you, to do some lecturing? Uh, that's correct, yeah. I have been uh, um, I have been overseas the last few months, uh, going to the UK, going to the US, um, and I may be going uh, to Scotland and to the US to uh, uh, have teach practitioners about... Um, various aspects such as uh, organic acid testing and, and so forth. So there's been a, a lot of opportunities opening up this year for me. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see where the year takes me. Now, today we're going to be talking about quite a complex syndrome. That's chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. But I guess before you take me through a definition of what that is, can you take us through your background and how you came to be in natural medicine? What directed you towards natural medicine in the first place? Well, um, Andrew, I was um, brought up in a household in South Africa where my mother used to take us to a homeopath whenever we got sick, which wasn't uh, very often, which is good. Um, but it sort of like gave me a natural gravitation towards um, natural medicine. And so I studied for about four years in South Africa and then another two years in Australia uh, to get my qualification hmm. in homeopathy and naturopathy. And um, my children were actually the ones who really perpetuated my development as a practitioner um, because they both had challenges with language development, um, ADD, and other symptoms um, where the medical profession wanted to sort of like throw a label at them. And I just was not interested in labels. I wanted solutions. And so it uh, forced me to do my own research. And at that point, there wasn't really that much available in Australia. And so I had to take my research um, to the States, um, where I found a lot of therapies and, and things that help them. And um, I guess, you know, the rest is history. Like, they, they, we've resolved all of the issues. Um, and it, 
sort of like taught me uh, a lot of things which I even today base my practice on, on that experience, mm. that it doesn't matter what you call a disease or a disorder, that it, all of it is just biochemical processes that has gone wrong. And if you can identify the challenges, the blocks or the inhibitions in the biochemistry, and you remove these, then um, everything can just flow as it should, and then you can pretty much treat anything. So um, it's exactly what you said earlier about a disease being a verb and not a noun. It is a process. It is not uh, an entity on its own. So that's how I treat everything in my practice. Yeah. Okay, so you've grasped something quite complex, something which eludes me, and that's SIRS. Can you take us through exactly what this is and what it encompasses? Because it's, it's really like a, a, a ball of wool to me. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a it's a big, huge rabbit hole that goes into more rabbit holes. Mm. Um, because SIRS, as you pointed out, stands for Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, and it is a body wide inflammatory condition, and pretty much the chronic version of SIRS, which is Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. Um, but it is also commonly known as biotoxin illness or mold toxicity syndrome even though it can actually be caused by many, many other organisms as well. And so you can divide CIRS into different subtypes as well. You can get CIRS acquired by exposure to water-damaged buildings. You can get CIRS acquired from uh, dinoflagellate and algal sources. You can get CIRS acquired from stealth pathogen sources, such as Borrelia. But, you know, really you can add a lot of other uh, organisms and toxin sources to that list um, because it's any organism that can trigger a chronic inflammatory response syndrome that can actually be grouped in here. And the only thing is that it's the mold biotoxin illness in the line that gets all the publicity. So that's why we focus on that. Um, but they are really only just two causes of CIRS. And, and in fact, mycotoxins only makes up about 1% of the problem. Um, they are finding that a lot of inflammagens, such as endotoxins, beta-glucans, hemolysins, proteinases, mannins, you know, um, there's just so many uh, compounds, even you know, your volatile organic compounds, they can all play a much larger role um, in developing CIRS, but they are just much harder to see. Um, and so CIRS is really an immune system reacting to a foreign antigen, and that is what makes you sick. And if this, uh, if the inflammation just keeps on perpetuating or this response just keeps on perpetuating, then it becomes a chronic response. And so CIRS can mimic a lot of other chronic health conditions as well, such as chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and multiple sclerosis. And so there's a lot of overlap with these things, and sometimes it becomes hard to diagnose. Hmm. But it really, if you can have, if you can sum it up in one word, it's it's just inflammation, chronic inflammation. So what happens to go wrong in the body that that these patients' immune system recognizes it as a threat, whereas a lot of us are still exposed to moulds, still maybe come into contact with dinoflagellates. There are those people overseas that get infected with Lyme disease and recover. Um, you know, there's controversy in Australia, even though they've found A. Borrelia, but people keep calling it Lyme, which I don't think it is because we haven't got that species. Yeah. But we've, we've certainly seem to have at least Borrelia here. You know, there are those of us that come in contact with these threats, let's say, or 
noxious, noxious entities, but we don't react in the same way as people who get SIRS. What goes wrong? Well, one of the important aspects here is, um, you know, the genes that can actually play a huge role here. And so what they found is that um, those are gene mutations on, um, it's a subset of genes, uh, and it's the HLA, DRB1, DQB1, DRB3, DRB4, and DRB5. And so they found that people with these kinds of gene mutations are more likely to develop this inappropriate immune response and be susceptible to getting sick from being exposed to mold or um, other um, uh, infections. And so um, there's about 54 HLA-DR genes relevant and about 150 sub subtypes, which can make it very confusing. And it has gotten really very, very complicated. But um, we're using it now more as a kind of a guidepost. So what it indicates is more of a relative risk in a group of people that are more susceptible. So the more mutations you have, the bigger the risk and the more susceptible you are. And um, so these kinds of people, they will be more susceptible to develop CIRS after being exposed to a trigger such as mold. So again, just testing positive for an HLA gene mutation doesn't necessarily reflect, reflect what that HLA gene will do. So these genes are sort of like shaped like clefts, and then the antigens when you are exposed to an antigen will enter this cleft where they are then sort of like recognized by the amino acids that's part of that gene. And some of the amino acids are permissive, which means it will allow the antigen to then enter the cleft and then leave without being recognized. Mm. And so this means that the antigen now has become like a stealth pathogen where no antibodies are actually made. So there's no protection from the acquired immune response. Um, and then you get this constant activation of the innate immune response. And so susceptible people will just stay sick for longer, even after they are out of the environment, which has made them sick in the first place, whereas non-susceptible people will get better. Um, and so the sick people's immune system, they are not tagging that organism and eliminating them. It, it's like it bypasses or um, yeah, it just bypasses the immune system. The immune system is just not seeing it. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've got to remember that we are born with the HLA genes, but we are not born with CIRS. So there has to be an event that set this whole thing up. You know, they, they, it could be something like Lyme, or it could be something like even um, um, mono or some kind of a viral infection or something that just has to initiate this process, but it's not necessarily the perpetuator of the process. And so I think gene involvement is a big one here. Um, and I'm just talking about the HLA genes here, but, you know, we could also include things like the glutathione genes, the SOD genes. If someone has just very poor susceptibility or a poor ability to clear toxins in general, all of these I can just add up. And I think this is just why some people, you know, really struggle to get better and why diseases are becoming more complex. And we have to really think beyond the square and how to help people get better because it's it's not the usual things that can uh, make the biggest difference anymore. There's not all these other nuances that comes into play. I've, I've got to say, like, you know, when I first heard about SIRS, I was extremely sceptical. And the reason that I was sceptical was that I was thinking, oh, well, you know, how could it be a new disease? Um, you know, are we just seeing the new flavour of the month diagnosis sort of thing? But then I started mm. thinking and I thought, hang on, we used to call tuberculosis consumption. We, we, there is no diagnosis in the 1800s for irritable bowel syndrome. 
So what were these people experiencing before, like back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, when we didn't have the diagnosis of SIRS? What, what, what were they termed as? Were they just lumped into chronic fatigue or...? I guess that's what, you know, we could we could see it as that, you know, and I seem to agree with you, Andrew. It's like we, you know, it's not about giving something a new name, and we do tend to do that. I think this is why we have to be careful and not saying, well, you've got CRRS as a condition. It's, it's again, it's recognizing that this is what the biochemistry is doing. It's stuck in a chronic inflammatory uh, syndrome. Mm. And I, I tend to agree with you. I think a lot of those past uh, illnesses could be classified in the same grouping because um, we're just talking about biochemical processes here. Um, so I am very careful not to try and make it as a disease because that's what we tend to like to do is just make up diseases and, yeah. How did you first become interested in SIRS um, as a condition or, or a group of conditions to treat? Yeah, well, you know, it was actually at one of Ben Lynch's uh, conferences. It was his uh, ShyCon 2016, where I heard Dr. Keith uh, Bernstein, um, I hope I said that correctly, but I heard him uh, give a talk on CIR, uh, CIRS relating to mold biotoxins and Lyme. And uh, it was the first time I heard about it, and I was like, very, very, very interested. So I started researching it, and I found that so many people had these kinds of symptoms. And they failed to get the help that they needed because um, it was still a relatively unknown subject here in Australia. I think it still is. Um, but it was already being talked a lot about in, in other advanced countries, and they were testing for these chronic infections, um, and they were testing for things like mold, um, which I think is actually a really big problem here in Australia, and especially in Queensland with the level of humidity we experience. So it wasn't really about a new disease, but it was, it was interesting that the testing that was being done for it was so much more advanced than what I was used to here in Australia. Mm. So they were testing for organisms that we, that we not usually test for. And they were, like I said, testing for mold biotoxins, which, you know, it, it surprises me how many people, if I send them back home and they go look for it, they find huge amounts of mold. Oh, yeah. And yet we are not recognizing that as another source or another root cause of possible illness, you know. Um, I think it's going to change definitely in the next five years or so. Uh, and again, we have to be careful to not just see everything then as mold, 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 mold. But it is in a very important uh, another exposure that we need to be aware of, especially in a uh, you know, humid uh, climate such as the Queensland climate. So I just felt it was very underdiagnosed, very underappreciated. And yeah, it just um, made me look at things a little bit differently, especially the hormonal involvement. When you started looking at CRS and how it influenced neuropeptides and the brain hormones and uh, neurotransmitters and everything, it just really made sense why people get all this multitude of symptoms with uh, all kinds of chronic inflammatory disorders. So for me, it was a huge connect the dots moment. It was just like, wow, here we see the immune system connecting with the brain, connecting with the hormones, connecting with just everything. And so um, I guess that's what sort of like took my interest into it. Um, I've got to say, Nicole Bilsma shook my head around, basically, um, enlightening me to the prevalence of mould issues. I mean, it, it just mm. absolutely stunned me. And then I started to think, I think, you, you know, I thought, ah, oh, we don't have a mould issue in our home. And then I thought, oh, hang on. And then I see suddenly little bits around the house. And it's not a huge issue, but little bits of, you know, and or um, part of the eaves that might have a bit of a mould 
issue on it. And I go, oh, wow, you know, it's, it's mould will grow where it can, <laughs> given, oh, given a damp environment. <laughs> it's just amazing. Um, but again, what interests me is these people's response. Um, so how common is SIRS? Are we, are we seeing a, an explosion of this? Are we looking for it and therefore we're over-diagnosing it? Um, you know, I think you could be onto something there. I'm not actually, I don't have the statistics in front of me in terms of how common it is, but I think it's a, it's, it's one of those things that can, we need to be careful that it becomes like chronic fatigue syndrome, mm. where it becomes this huge label. And, um, I think in, in, in that aspect, um, I think it's actually quite common. Just because of the amount of, you know, when I do, when I see people come through my doors, and it could just be my client population, I see the strangest kinds of infections. Now, whether we are testing more for it, I think that is definitely a valid point. We are testing now for viruses and bacteria and parasites that we haven't tested for before. Mm-hmm. So now it's showing up. But I also think people are getting more answers. Like a lot of these people have been left high and dry by the medical system and even by other systems in that no one knew what to do with them. So they would just end up going through life, you know, with ill health and no one being able to help them. So we just have more tools now with genetic testing and everything else that we can now pinpoint things. Um, Are they getting better because of the testing? No, that's another argument we can have because I know of people who've been on treatments for many, 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 many years Mm. for these kinds of conditions and they don't really get any better. So I think it's such a... Um, you know, not talking about CRS as a condition, but just all these infections and all these exposures, um, we still don't know what to do with a lot of these things. I think we're still in the learning processes of treatment protocols. Um, and I, I you know, don't like the word, to use the word protocols because I don't believe in protocols, but I think we're still very much in the beginning stages of learning how we can get rid of you know, how do we get rid of viruses? How do we get rid of all of these things? So um, I think we are better at diagnosing and getting answers for people, but I don't think we're necessarily quite there yet in terms of the treatment. But we're understanding now the role that these organisms play more so in um, our general biochemistry. Because if you think about it, Andrew, in the past, if someone had, you know, like a mental illness, schizophrenia or depression, that was what they had. But now we're connecting a lot of those mental symptoms to infections and to things like CIRS. We're starting to connect things that were just fobbed off as you have this disease, this disease, this disease, and now we're seeing it more as a global uh, body dysfunction. So I think um, maybe we are over-diagnosing CIRS. I don't think it's more prevalent. I just think we're now starting to categorize these other diseases like schizophrenia or depression or hormonal disorders, we can now start to actually regroup them into something like CIRS because we're understanding better that these are not isolated illnesses, that they are part of a bigger body response. So I think we're just really reclassifying things and sort of, you know, uh, putting things into new bags and putting new labels on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, to me, it seems to be kind of like... Um, that in the past we we looked at um, alcoholism as a disorder, as the problem, whereas now yeah. we really look at alcoholism as a symptom 
of what's going on. Something is causing exactly. alcoholism to occur. That's the reason they're driven to drink, if you like. Is that sort of where you're heading with this, that we now have a classification, if you like, of what might, of a group of things that might be going on and we term it under one banner, but it's really a flag to say there's something going on here rather than what we should be falling down a diagnosis um, box, as you say. Yeah. That's correct. You know, we could, we, could, we could say that we're seeing CIRS now as more of a recognition of root cause because, you know, you know 50 years or so ago, um, and you, can, you can take the microbiome as a good example. Um, I mean, how long have we said that uh, gut bacteria has an influence on the brain and the mm. medical community just didn't want to accept that? But now it's the, it's the new big thing, isn't it? Everyone's now recognizing the role of the gut microbiome in all these illnesses. And the same with CIRS. It's really just a banner to say, hey, all of these things that you classify as diseases has a root cause, and the root cause is going to be some kind of a bug, some kind of a mold, some kind of a toxin, um, and this is the way the body responds to it in this inflammatory process. And if you don't remove the, uh, the exposure, the inflammation will just keep on going and creating these um, biochemical dysfunctions. So I think it's just a, really a recognition that there are root causes that we haven't seen uh, before because we didn't recognize that a root cause can actually cause these kinds of responses. So I think it's that same thing. We're just really starting to appreciate the environmental influences on things that were commonly just labeled as a disease. And now we're seeing that, no, it doesn't work like that. There are always some kind of an exposure uh, or a root cause that we need to look at. So that's, I guess, what you mm. could see CRS as. It's just a recognition of that. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk about the, the key signs and symptoms of somebody with SIRS. Um, what sort of things go on? I'm imagining all sorts of issues because it's a, a, a general sort of thing which could present in any number of, of ways. Is that correct or...? You are very correct, oh. Andrew. So, you know, it's going to sound like the same old, same old when I say the symptoms because you are right, it is a very uh, a globalized kind of signs and symptoms. So, you know, you'll get things like your chronic fatigue with a lot of cognitive issues or um, brain dysfunction, uh, a lot of executive cognitive function problems because um, a, a lot of the brain areas get affected with CIRS. It can be respiratory issues, especially where um, mold is maybe more involved. It can be GIT issues, um, um, you know, they can have diarrhea and constipation, muscular pain, fibromyalgia, mood swings, night sweats, um, excessive uh, thirst and urination, uh, hormonal dysregulation, which is very, very commonly seen. Um, and a very interesting symptom that I do think is a little bit unique is a static shock sensitivity. So. Um, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so that is a little bit of a unique symptom when it comes to CRS. But um, yeah, definitely a lot of globalized symptoms that you can put in the bag of chronic fatigue syndrome and a whole bunch of other ones. Um, so those are the kinds of signs and symptoms. And I guess especially in people where they're not finding any uh, resolution with normal treatments, um, that's sort of like where you have to start looking for uh, something more deeper or sinister going on that's perpetuating that inflammation. With regards to the static shock sensitivity, that one interests me. Is that because they're sympathetically dominant and their, their, their alert reaction is heightened? Well, you know, that is actually an interesting one because um, when, I, when I sort of like researched that, it seems to be to do with the um, 
um, the uh, ADH or the antidiuretic hormone, which is one of the uh, neuropeptides that gets dysregulated with something like CRS. So uh, the antidiuretic uh, hormone is produced by the hypothalamus, and it induces the kidneys to conserve water. Mm. And so if you have um, uh, low um, alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, which is another neuropeptide involved in CRS, then you, that will sort of like lead to low uh, antidiuretic hormone. And so if the antidiuretic hormone levels are low, then water is not actually being reabsorbed by the kidneys. And so this is why uh, people with CRS will sort of like feel the need to urinate a lot more. And so you, you become more thirsty, you become dehydrated, and then it creates sort of like os- osmolality changes and can make inflammation worse and sort of result in low blood pressure. But um, it's, it's actually this, apparently this change in uh, osmolality and uh, also then the sort of like change in the delivery of oxygen and nutrients into and out of the cells um, that can seem to make you more susceptible to uh, shocks of static electricity. Um, you know, I may not have explained it as well as I should have, but it seems to be more t- something to do in that kind of dysregulation system. Mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, that's the hypothalamus control. So for sure, you know, we could, we could definitely tie the uh, sympathetic system, nervous system in there as well. So I'm imagining, you know, you said rabbit holes at the beginning and rabbit holes within the rabbit holes. I'm thinking about a big one here. How do we test patients for it? <laughs> okay, so yeah, there is a, a lot of rabbit holes. So testing, you know, this is, I guess, where you can get sort of like differences of opinion. Um, you, there's a lot of kinds of testing that you can look for. If you, if you look at the general CIR, CIRS testing panels, um, you'll see that a lot of times they'll test for things like um, your MNP9, your C3A, C4A, TGF-beta-1, MSH, VIP. That's sort of like the general panels that you will see on a, on a blood test for something like CIRS. And these are all just markers of various forms of immune activation and inflammation. Um, they are very useful to measure um, to see if there is that chronic inflammatory response going on, which is way beyond, you know, our average CRP ESR testing that we have on the general blood panel. Mm. And there are also really good markers to measure if your treatment is working because you can just measure these markers from time to time. And if they come down, your treatment works. If not, gotcha. well, then you need to look for something else. But there are, you know, some people will, uh, some practitioners will do a lot of the gene testing. So all those HLA, DRB genes that I was talking about. Um, I personally feel that, you know, with my population, um, I don't have a lot of money. So I have to be very careful with what kind of testing I do. So the gene testing is not the first test that I would do because, in my opinion, like, I don't really care what genes you've got. I'm interested in what's causing this inflammatory response. So I would tend to uh, look more for the uh, root sources. And so some of the uh, testing that you can do is you can actually get uh, tested for all these uh, mold biotoxins and aflatoxins. Um, But a very cheap test that you can do, Andrew, is the uh, VCS test or the Visual Contrast Sensitivity Test, Mm -hmm. which there's quite a few websites where you can get this done. Uh, The Surviving Mold website is one of them, which is Dr. Richie Schumacher's um, website, as I understand. Um, And it costs you like $10 or $15. It's an online test. And even though the online test is not as good as the actual in-clinic test, it is still a very... Uh, 
uh, well, widely available, easy to do test. And it's just, it literally takes you maybe 10 minutes or so. It's a visual contrast test you do online. And uh, from that, you can sort of um, get like a, a pass or a fail in terms of whether there could be uh, a, a CRS kind of response going on in the body. Um, because it measures, um, it measures the, um, the hyper or the hypoperfusion in the capillaries of the eye, um, which is very highly affected when there's a chronic inflammatory response going on. And so it's sort of like an easy test you can do that if you fail it, you can say, well, okay, there's something going on here. I think I may need to investigate this further. And then you can go on to doing more expensive kinds of testing. Gotcha. But there's also other testing. You know, there's neuroquant testing, which is more of a brain imaging kind of testing. There's really a lot of ways you can go about it. I think this is where clinician skill comes uh, at hand because you still have to think, what do I think is the is the trigger here for this person? Is it more of a do I suspect more of a mole trigger? Do I um, suspect more of a line trigger? Do I suspect more of a, an environmental chemical trigger? Because that can also direct your testing as well. Mm. And what are you going to test for here? But um, the general markers that I gave you there in the beginning are sort of like the where a lot of clinicians start as the okay, yeah, we're dealing with the CRS now. Let's find the trigger for this. Gotcha. So I just looked up, so vcstest.com. Is that the correct mm. test site? Yeah. Well, that's one of them, yes. Or you can go to Surviving Mold. I think there's a few websites that can that provide this test. So Surviving Mold is another one where they have the, um, the test available there as well. That's awesome because I think, um, you know, inexpensive testing measures are sorely needed. They are dire. In, yeah. You know, um, yeah. Yeah, we don't have very many of them. And particularly, when, as you say, these people are the sickest of the, you know, most cohorts that you'll, that you'll get, most group of patients that you'll get. So they really need every ounce of help they can for as little expense as they can. That's, um, oh, definitely. Yep. So approaching treatment now, and again, here's another rabbit hole. You know, what, how do you treat stuff? You, I, I guess we've got to get away from treating SIRS as a as a, a label, as a box, as, as I said, um, mm. and rather treat their particular issues. Is that how you do it? You sort of personalise their treatment program? Yeah, that, that's how I would certainly do it. I mean, um, again, you'll get lots of differences of opinions here because people like protocols, and so there are certain protocols in treatment. The, the, the number one thing you have to do, no, no matter who you are or how you approach this, is you have to remove the exposure. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, there's no point in getting into specific treatments, whether it's antibiotics or herbs or what have you, if you haven't actually found the source and stopped the exposure. Um, so, because everything will just be useless until you do that. Um, you know, toxins in must be less than toxins out. And so this means you have to identify the source and remove it or clean it. You have to either then remove yourself from the environment completely if you cannot clean it, uh, or you have to treat the infection if it is an infection-driven um, process. Um, so that, to me, is the absolute number one, is identify and remove if you can. Yeah. Um, 
because if you only treat the downstream effects, you know, if you go and test, and I think this is where, where the issue comes in, is we, we see, oh, this person's hormones are out, so let's treat their hormones. Or, oh, they, um, you know, serotonin is low. And if you just treat those downstream effects and not the root cause, then they'll just never get better. It becomes a revolving door in and out of the uh, clinician's, uh, you know, clinic. Mm. Um, so that is definitely the, the number one thing. Uh, the number two thing for me, the big one, is fix the leaky gut. And this sounds like a broken record, but my goodness. Um, I mean, I think that is such an important aspect. And I again, I don't want to just become the leaky gut kind of person. And I'm not saying everyone has that, but I think that is, it's fair enough to say that I think that is uh, an important issue for the majority of people mm. out there, given our lifestyle. Mm. So if you if you have a leaky gut, then your treatments are also going to be ineffective. So this is all just about making the treatment effective. Yeah, you have to make sure that they they gut is supported. That is a big thing, uh, especially if you know. And if you if you go back to the more biotoxin uh, example, all those HLA genes they are um, you know the the celiac genes are involved in there, and so a lot of these people will have a tendency to to more of a leaky gut kind of a. Um, um, I guess phenotype. Um, the third thing for me that's very important is you have to make sure that their detoxification systems are working. Again, you can treat them with all these things, but if they're not detoxing, you're just going to make them sick. You're going to make them worse. They're not going to get rid of these things because one of the main reasons why people stay sick who have been exposed is because they're not detoxing well in the first place. So you can't go ahead with treatments if they're not detoxing. You have to make sure their bowels are working. You have to make sure that the you know the kidneys are supported and the liver is supported. It's all those boring things that we don't you know we think well we need to find some fancy treatments. You have to have the foundations right. It's always about the foundations. Mm. So you know those are sort of like the key things I would start off with. Once that's in place, you know then um, then I like to use uh, binders. So binders is some of the things that I think uh, is a very important thing to get in early on. Now, if you're following sort of more the Dr. Schumacher's protocol in cholestyramine or Valco will be the kind of binders that would be used. Um, but, you know, the, not all of us have that um, access. So you could use other binders as well, you know, more your natural binders like your zeolites, your charcoals, your bamboo, your modified citrus pectin. But I will emphasize there, isn't, there hasn't been a lot of research done on this. I think this is where we're lacking a little bit, and I think we really need to explore more in the future. Is we have not really, uh, you know, done much much research in the natural treatment uh, um, or the alternative treatments for these kinds of conditions. So there's not really data on this. Like I can't say that this is going to work or that's going to work. It's going to be very much a, a case by case process where you just have to try things and see if the person gets better or not. But it would be really, it would be so amazing if you can start getting more clinical data on this kind of stuff to see what actually works and what doesn't work. Because currently we have uh, data on things like the uh, cholestyramine, but we don't have data on any other kinds of binders. Um, but I think that is a very, very important part in the um, in the treatment protocol as well as having binders on board so that as you treat the person, that you can um, actually bind these toxins and move them out and they don't get reabsorbed back into the system and just keep this inflammatory process going on. So um, that's sort of like is definitely the core of, of treatment. You know, then there's lots of other spin-offs um, depending on which protocol you use. You know, they use a lot of um, 
VIP treatments and things like that in the Schumacher protocol. Um, I think I think we still can learn more here about which way to treat people. So I don't want to you know say too much about protocols because I don't want to get practitioners stuck in that mindset. Mm. I think if, if we can if we make sure the foundations are correct. Um, and then we just have to sort of like look at what is the source and, and, and treat it the source because you will treat the person differently depending on whether it's a, a mold exposure or depending whether it's a, a co-infection or a viral exposure or a toxin exposure. Your treatment will differ there, but the core foundations will, will always stay the same. And so um, that will be my, my approach to treatment. And then I will just sort of individualize from there on depending on what I think is the uh, – the key issue for them. And I'd just like to remind our listeners that cholestyramine is a drug and therefore must be appropriately monitored by a medical professional. Uh, and it's not without risks. It can have issues with thyroid hormone absorption and uh, there's a metabolic issue with um, salt. I think it might be chloride. Uh, another major issue is um, constipation. What about any red flags that we need to be aware of? I, I, I guess the one that's in my, you know, uppermost in my mind when you spoke about urination um, was diabetes. Um, how do you then tease apart red flags that you need to go, oh, no, 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 hands off, I need you to get this checked out first? Yeah, okay, so there's a couple of check boxes that, you know, have to be ticked when you sort of you want to suspect that this is more of a CIRS kind of uh, pattern rather than something like diabetes. And so the 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 tick boxes are... When you find someone with multiple unexplained or non-responsive symptoms, in other words, you do the normal thing with whatever you think is going on with a person, but they're not responding. So you, it does really hard cases where you're just like, man, this is just not going the way that I thought it was going to go. And you put your hands up and you say, I'm a little bit lost here. So it's those kinds of cases you really need to look at. You need to look at past or current history of exposure to damp, moldy or water-damaged buildings or tick bites or anything like that. Um, usually they like to include at le- that there has to be at least one HLA, CIA susceptible genotype in there. I don't know if I would put much emphasis on that, but that is one of the criteria that they would sort of put a, a red flag on. Um, and also um, where the person shows a pattern of an innate immune inflammatory response. Now, um, something that to be aware of, Andrew, which I thought was really, really interesting, and this is a, uh, um, I think I don't think the paper is published yet, and it may be published um, a little bit you know, in the next few months. Mm. But, Doctor, um, I think it's quite relevant to just mention this because of the testing that we're doing, and we need to understand the um, the pitfalls with testing as we are doing it currently. Um, Dr. Dietrich Klinghardt and Dr. Marco uh, Rudiaro, I hope I've pronounced their names correctly, but I have huge respect for them because what they've done is they've actually developed like a unique way of testing for chronic infections because one of the things that we've found is um, that a lot of these uh, chronic infections, co-infections such as Borrelia and such as Lyme, but I think many others as well, they can sort of like set up compartments in the body and they can hide really well. So they're not necessarily in the blood. They're usually in, sitting in the tissues and sitting in the cells. But what are we testing for? We're testing for blood. I cannot tell you how many <laughs> tests course. I have seen for Lyme that it comes back. It's not really positive. It's not really negative. It's sitting there somewhere, so they, they put it as a fail. And um, what we need to understand is that 
you can, you know, if you have chronic Lyme, if it's acute, yes, you'll pick it up in the blood. But if it's chronic infections, they will they could sit in the right hippocampus of the brain, but not necessarily in the entire brain. Or they can sit in the brain stem and not in the liver. You don't know where these infections are sitting. They can be in biofilm, they can be uh, inside cells, because they don't really move around a lot. So what they found is that if you have if you want to test for a chronic uh, infection, you have to coax them out. Um, because we're not really doing tissue samples, we're not doing biopsies, we're doing blood testing. And so Dr. Klinghardt and Dr. Riaro, they've developed like a unique way of testing where they will actually use ultrasound treatments in the brain, in the thymus, in the spleen, the vagus nerve, and the brainstem. And they, in this way, they're driving the microbes out of these areas. Uh, and then some of these microbes will then spill into the bloodstream and then... Um, it can be tested for in blood or there's now, um, I think there's a new test available now where they actually collect the urine and they do PCR testing on the urine. And then that's where they will test for or look for the whole strands of DNA and microbes in the urine. So they are actually finding now where tests previously came up negative, now they're coming back positive. And so I did want to emphasize that because I think we get fixated on testing and we're like, oh, well, the test was negative, so that's it. And we need to understand the limitations of tests and what are we actually testing for? Because I still, you know, my, you, you cannot treat the test. You have to treat the person. You have to look at that case history. If, you know, if, if you, if they're chronically inflamed and you know that there is something going on, but the tests come back negative and you just believe in the test and you know, don't treat the person because the test says there's nothing there, you have to understand the limitations of those tests. Hmm. Um, so I just thought that is a really important thing to point out because um, as practitioners, we do get we can get really stuck on these things because it is easy. We want the answers given to us, but sometimes the answers are not there, and you have to understand the limitations of that. So I just thought I'd point that out as another kind of a risk factor in getting the diagnosis wrong just because you rely too much on what a test is telling you. So um, I just thought I'd put that one out there as well. Where can people get uh, further information and resources, education on this topic? Because it seems to be very involved. Still not not without um, some areas that need to be cleared up, but, uh, you know, I think there's some people working on it diligently. Yeah, that, I mean, the research just keeps on coming out and uh, uh, there's some very exciting things in the pipeline which I'm busy investigating as well. Um, but if they want to go and, you know, I'm assuming that a lot of the practitioners here will be very new at this or fairly new at this and they just want to get sort of like some kind of idea of what's, uh, what to look for and, and, and treatment, is there's a couple of resources you can go to. Um, one of the, uh, there was just very recently a talk done in the UK by the uh, Academy of Nutritional Medicine, which was uh, in the whole CIRS kind of syndrome. And um, there was a few very, very prominent speakers there, and they can download the notes from the website. It's uh, www.aonm.org. Um, if they go there, there, there were some brilliant speakers, Dr. Jess Armine from Bioindividualized Medicine, Dr. Uh, Dietrich Klinghardt, Dr. Armin Schwarzbach. They were all speakers at this conference, and they notes you can just download them and, and, and read through them. Um, and then, obviously, Dr. Richie Schumacher's uh, website, survivingmold.com, is another really good resource as well. Um, Dr. Keith Bernstein, which is an MD from uh, Park Ridge uh, Multi-Med Clinic. I don't have mm. his website, but um, that's definitely another person. And you could 
look into and follow up on. These are all people I really respect in the uh, uh, community of CIRS, and um, they all have a slightly different take on it. You know, some of them will focus more on infection, some of them will focus more on mold uh, or or other things, but. You know, these are great resources to go and um, have a look at if you want to sort of learn more about it. So we'll definitely put aonn.org up on the FX Medicine website for our listeners and uh, some other resources there as well so that people can learn more about this very complex issue. Elisma, any further points that we need to sort of add in just before we wrap up? Um, Andrew, I will just uh, mention that the most important thing for me that I would like to leave practitioners with is, um, and I have said that before, always treat the patient, don't treat the test. Yes. Uh, you have to really take a very, very good case history and you have to do a timeline with them. Timelines are so important. You have to see where was the point when things started changing for them because that's where your answer is going to be. So, you know, it could have been a viral infection they had as a teenager. It could have been an exposure to a, a, a toxin a, um, where they were working at or, um, you know, it could be, like I said, a tick bite or when they moved into a new home um, or an or older home style home where they could be exposed to mold. The timelines are so, so important because that's going to give you your answer in where your next test will, will lie. Instead of just doing a whole barrage of testing, do a timeline, see where you think where the, where the first exposure happened, and that will direct you to your next step, which would be testing and finding the root cause. Elisma Lambert, thank you so much for taking us through those rabbit holes within rabbit holes, which is SIRS, and really teasing apart the relevant um, points for patients to get better. Um, I love what you said, always treat the patient, not the test. Thank you so much for joining us on FX Medicine today. Well, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Andrew. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research and other resources.